This episode of The Great War Podcast is brought to you by Audible. The good people at Audible are offering you, the listeners of The Great War Podcast, a free audiobook download when you sign up for a no-cost 30-day trial membership. You can qualify for this offer by going to audibletrial.com forward slash gwarpodcast. That again is audibletrial.com forward slash gwarpodcast. Whether it's for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 device, Audible has over 150,000 titles to choose from. If there's ever been a book you've wanted to read, but just haven't found the time to sit down and read it, Audible has got you covered. There's something for everyone, ranging from horror to comedy to science fiction and history. This week, I'm going to recommend a book I just finished myself, War of Attrition by William Philpott, a fantastic discussion of how the belligerents ready themselves for the demands of the attritional struggle. So when you're done with this episode, remember to go to audibletrial.com forward slash gwarpodcast. No capitals, no spaces. That again is audibletrial.com forward slash gwarpodcast for your free audiobook. Hello, and welcome to The Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 32, Thunder and Earthquake. Before the German guns opened fire on the morning of Monday, February the 21st, 1916, the salient around Verdun had been one of the quiet sectors on the Western Front. Surrounded by patchworks of forests, rolling hillsides, and divided by the Meuse River, which meanders its way north through the city itself, Verdun was an inauspicious site to host the largest battle of the war thus far. When the German armies first arrived in August 1914, they had stopped short of capturing the city. Protecting the citadel were a ring of immense forts, 19 in total, which had stood as silent sentinels for decades, if not centuries prior. The largest of which, the massive and formidable Fort du Monde, constructed in the 1890s, sat atop the highest peak. Protected by nearly 7 meters of earth and concrete, du Monde was the centerpiece of Verdun's defensive ring. Its armament, rotating cannons encased in cement redoubts, quick-firing anti-personal howitzers, and numerous machine guns, made it an intimidating obstacle for any advancing army. But Verdun's forts, some having undergone upgrades as recently as 1913, were quickly proven as relics of a bygone age. In Belgium, the 42-centimeter Big Bertha cannons had decimated the fortresses at Liège and Namur, proving that positional warfare was now obsolete. To meet the German advance, Joseph Joffe had ordered the forts at Verdun, including Fort du Monde, be stripped of heavy weapons to beef up weaker sectors of the front. When the German 5th Army, commanded by Crown Prince Wilhelm, laid siege to Verdun, the French commander, General Maurice Sarai, had defied Joffe's orders. Instead of keeping the Germans pinned down, Sarai chose to attack. This unexpected move stunned the attacking Germans, who were methodically held back by the excellent French 75mm field guns, the Black Butchers, as the Germans called them. With the fighting around Verdun escalating, the breakthrough at the Marne sealed the deal. As the German army retreated, Verdun acted as the elbow, pivoting the German line as they dug themselves along the Chamy des Dames. By the winter of 1914, the Verdun sector had fallen quiet. The Crown Prince's 5th Army to the north, astride east and west banks of the Meuse, and the French line to the south remained in a state of constant standoff. Neither side were given reinforcements, or called upon to take part in any major offensives. The Verdun forts, stripped of heavy weapons and reduced to small garrisons, remained in French hands. 
concrete beasts whose days of importance were long past. Now, this may come as a surprise, but since August 1914, Verdun was of secondary importance. It was not the national symbol it would become two years later. When the Germans attacked in 1916, Maurice Sarai, the original defender of the forts, was reassigned to Salonika, a tough reward for someone who saved what Pétain would later call the moral bulwark of the French nation. Since then, Joffre had even entertained the idea of giving Verdun up for good, abandoning the salient for a better defensive position further south. In a sense, Verdun was a place where Joffre and the French high command combed for resources, a place where manpower material came from and not to. By 1916, only four divisions and a pair of territorial brigades, 80,000 men in total, under the command of General Frederick Hare, were left to defend against the menacing 5th Army. Like other quiet sectors on the Western Front, a live-and-let-live policy had settled in. Artillery fire was held until both sides had finished breakfast, and men would sun themselves on the parapet of their trenches or on the roofs of the surrounding forts. Simply put, the war in Flanders, Artois, and Champagne couldn't have been further away. But as February 1916 came into view, there were rumblings which hinted that the Germans were up to something. Despite Falkenhayn's best efforts, information from neutral and allied spies had leaked back to Paris. It was clear that an attack on Verdun was coming. But would this be THE attack? To Joseph Joff, this was unlikely. For some time now, Allied High Command had expected a German attack sometime early in the new year, most likely in Champagne or Artois, where German infantry were more concentrated. Indeed, the Germans had been firing raging shots since mid-January, but Joff clung to the belief that any action near Verdun was diversionary. Both he and Douglas Haig wrongly expected that Falkenheim would use 1916 to resume the offensive against the Russians. This misguided assumption had operated in the background at the Chantilly Conference. With Falkenheim again concentrated on the Eastern Front, it would allow the French and British armies to marshal in preparation for the Great Western Offensive in the spring. Diversionary attacks in France were indeed plausible. Falkenheim had done it at Ypres the previous year, so there was little reason to suspect anything different this time around. In fact, since December 1915, the German 3rd, 4th, and 6th armies had conducted diversionary attacks of their own. Unwilling to commit, or unwilling to believe that the threatening situation at Verdun was serious, Joff begrudgingly authorized an additional three divisions and 388 field guns be sent to beef up the salient. The arrival of these reinforcements were assisted by a bad turn in weather. Falkenheim had attended the start date of Operation Judgment, the assault on Verdun, to begin on February the 12th. But for over a week, the battlefield was engulfed in a winter storm. Snow, ice, and hail fell almost round the clock. The German attackers, already with dry mouths and tightening stomachs, were unable to leave their forward trenches, and many lost toes and fingers due to frostbite. This delay, which lasted until the 21st, threatened the whole operation. Morale would undoubtedly sag, but most importantly, the delay would give the opposition precious time to prepare as best they could. On February the 18th, the storm finally broke. The sky cleared, and the ground had begun to dry. Around 4.30 in the morning, on Monday, February the 21st, the first shell from the German guns pierced the silence. A 1,700-pound shell, fired from a 380mm long Max railway gun, landed in Verdun itself. The French defenders did not see the source, but heard the howl as it passed overhead. Just three hours later, the German batteries, 1,400 guns, one for every five meters of the front, began their bombardment. No one had seen or experienced anything like it before. Sixty miles to the west, French and German infantry dug in along the River Aisne, felt the ground begin to shake, and could see an ominous red glow creep its way on the horizon. 
For the French defenders positioned at Verdun, it was as if Armageddon had arrived. Dugouts collapsed and command posts were eviscerated from view. Mountains of earth and concrete were tossed in the air as the cacophony roared around them. It was an all-out assault on the senses. Aftershock shattered teeth and ruptured insides, shaking men to their very bone. Some, lucky enough to survive, were driven mad by the thunderous display. Men were squashed, cut in two, or divided from top to bottom. Blown into showers, bellies turned inside out, skulls forced into the chest as if by blow of a club, recalled one French survivor. For the German gunners, fully aware of the terror they were unleashing, the bombardment had a soothing effect. It was, after all, a bit of payback. They had been on the receiving end of Allied barrages for over a year, and were now extracting some revenge. Caked in sweat and bleeding from ruptured eardrums, hour after hour, shell after shell, the cannonade continued. The heaviest shells targeted Verdun and its surrounding forts, cutting rail lines and destroying bridges. Within an hour, communication between the citadel and forward positions was non-existent. After four o'clock, the most devastating part of the bombardment, the trommel fewer, the drum fire, set in. German guns fired every 15 seconds. A storm, a hurricane, a tempest growing ever stronger where it was raining nothing but paving stones, recalled Mark Stephanie, an enlisted man stationed at Verdun. Around us, everything is shaking. Everything is breaking apart. Everything is about to capsize. It's as if we were in a ship scraping its bottom on a reef in a sea of mud. The acidic smell of so many nitrates made the gunners woozy, and their victims, likewise, held handkerchiefs to their mouths to block out the nauseating odor. Then, at 5 o'clock p.m. sharp, the batteries fell silent, and an eerie calm settled on the battlefield. In nine hours, German gunners had pulverized the 16-kilometer front line of Verdun east of the Meuse. Pockmarked by monstrous craters, ruins of defensive positions, twisted corpses, and woods blasted to stumps or engulfed in flames, it's a wonder that anything could survive. In total, one million shells had fallen on Verdun that day. During the Trommelfuhr, 100,000 shells rained down in a single hour. I'm still amazed that anyone could walk away from this. Immediately after the barrage lifted, the 1st German infantry began the attack. The Crown Prince's 5th Army advanced from the north, along a front divided into four sectors. If you take a look at the map I've put up on the website, the four sectors, A to D, were concentrated on the east bank of the Meuse. Their objectives, in sectors A, B, and C, were to storm the high ground northeast of Verdun itself. This plateau, known collectively as the Meuse Heights, would be where German troops would begin to bleed the French into submission. To ensure the capture of the heights, the line of forts which crowned the plateau, Floyterry, Fort Souville, and Tavernes, needed to be silenced. Once in German hands, the artillery would go to work, funneling in the French and exhausting them in a contest of wills and firepower. But before that could be undertaken, the colossal Fort Duomond would need to be bypassed. Rising from the smoke and chaos on the French side, survivors were beginning to pool together. Junior officers and men of rank and file assembled together in makeshift units, ready to meet the enemy advance. As they emerged from the northern woods, the German infantry moved with alarming speed, bypassing crushed dugouts and defenders who had been driven mad by the morning's bombardment. Also, too, these German troops looked slightly different. The traditional spiked helmets were replaced by the smooth, more practical steel helmet, soon standard for the German army until after the Second World War. Many were also armed with a new weapon, making its first appearance on the battlefield, portable flamethrowers, which were used to burn out any remaining resistance. The German 7th Corps, attacking in Sector A near Helmont Forest, met little resistance, and soon captured the French 1st and 2nd lines. Meanwhile, near the town of Beaumont to the east, 
pockets of resistance were stalling the advance. Two French divisions in the area, the 72nd and 51st Reserve Divisions, although outnumbered nearly 3 to 1, were causing the Germans to second-guess their approach, and for the next three days engaged them in a brutal close-quarter firefight. Back at his headquarters in Chantilly, Joseph Joffre had received alarming reports detailing what was happening at Verdun. Some reports, suggesting that the Germans had captured 25,000 men and 800 artillery pieces, were confirmed and then refudiated by the next piece of news. At Verdun itself, General Frédéric Herr recognized the salient would need to be abandoned. He had only seven divisions to defend against a staggering 41 German. Joffre, still believing the action at Verdun was a diversion to a larger attack elsewhere, denied requests for reinforcements. Instead, he approved General Herr's plan to withdraw. Their best option was to fall back to better positions, shorten the line, and keep the Germans from getting behind them. The initial assault on Verdun, then, did not bring the crisis that Falkenhayn had intended. German infantry, supported by immense artillery fire, were throwing the defense into disarray. Villages to the north vanished from the map, and German gains inched ever closer to seizing the Meuse Heights. By the 24th of February, the 72nd and 51st Divisions had lost nearly 60% of their men killed, wounded, or missing. But overall, the French response was alarmingly passive. Joffre did not believe Falkenhayn had cast his lot over Verdun. From his perspective, it made no sense. The area had been neglected since 1914, and the forts themselves were stripped of anything useful. For all intents and purposes, the French had already abandoned Verdun some time ago, so what did Falkenhayn have to gain by attacking in such strength? Indeed, considering what we discussed last week, if Falkenhayn's goal was to destroy the French army, picking an area where their presence was minimal is a bit curious. But Joffre did not have to wait for an answer, because in the early morning of February the 25th, German infantry captured Fort Douaumont without a shot being fired. This was particularly surprising to the attackers, having expected much stiffer resistance from the immense structure. But what came as a bigger shock were the condition of Douaumont's garrison. Protecting the centerpiece of Verdun's defense were just 65 territorial reserve troops, armed with 40-year-old rifles, under the command of a single sergeant. Adding further humiliation was the discovery that Douaumont had been rigged with explosives, but the pitifully undermanned garrison had gotten cold feet. The mightiest fort in all of France was simply handed to the enemy. The path to the Meuse Heights was now open. The capture of Fort Douaumont was a fulcrum in the battle at Verdun. It was here when the French recognized the severity of the situation, and thus fell headfirst in the Falkenhayn's trap. The fall of Douaumont could not be kept a secret for long, and word quickly spread. The new premier, Aristide Briand, traveled to Chantilly to find out just what the heck was going on. After being brought up to speed by Joffre and his operation staff, something happened which caught everyone by surprise. Having just saved Joffre's behind the previous year, the news that his commander-in-chief was bumbling the Verdun response enraged Briand to no end. The premier was furious and told his military officials that they had two options, either defend Verdun or find yourself another job. It was that simple. Briand knew that in the political pressure cooker of Third Republic in France, any conceived show of weakness on the government's behalf would be pounced upon. And how could he, in good faith, continue to support Joffre if he was willing to turn over home soil to the German invaders? Joffre, no doubt red-faced and a bit shaken from this outburst, was forced to save face. He immediately rescinded Hare's evacuation order, issuing a new statement, saying, quote, The Meuse must be held on the right bank. There can be no more question of any other course than that of checking the enemy, cost what it may on that bank, end quote. In addition, he called upon the French Second Army, which had been held in reserve to take over the defense of Verdun, 
Commanding the Second Army was a man whose name will become synonymous with the dogged determination of the French defense, General Philippe Pétain. Although Pétain is most famous for his role as head of Vichy France in the Second World War, Pétain's reputation was first forged on the battlefield at Verdun, which would make him a national hero. However, his start at Verdun began on an embarrassing note, having been called out of a liaison with his mistress when Joffre's order arrived. Pétain was a suitable choice, not just for Joffre, but for Falkenhayn as well. Pétain, a student of artillery, was a professor of artillery tactics at France's premier military academy. He, like Ferdinand Foch, had closely studied the changing role of the big guns, and how close cooperation between firepower and infantry was a key to breaking the deadlock in Western Europe. His approach to artillery was it needed to be aggressive, and should operate as the main arm of attack, with infantry being used to occupy positions already brought to heel. His motto, the artillery conquers and infantry occupy, was quickly becoming the go-to slogan of French defenders. Upon arriving at Verdun, Pétain's first order of business was to ensure no further withdrawals were made. In the evening of February the 25th, Pétain unknowingly did exactly what Falconine hoped he would do. His new orders to the Verdun garrison read, quote, Beat off at all costs the attacks of the enemy, and retake immediately any piece of land taken by him, end quote. That last point, about retaking land, was a decisive step in the battle, because it marked a break from passive to aggressive defense. As Falkenhayn hoped, the French had now committed themselves to the defense of Verdun, and by counterattacking lost land, had given themselves to his overall strategy. However, there was one major problem. The 5th Army was still stuck at the foothills of the Meuse Heights, and the key positions along Foy-Terry, Fort-Souville, and Fort-Savenez remained in French hands. As long as those positions were beyond reach, Falkenhayn's first phase, the bleeding white of France's army, could not begin in earnest. Despite the shock of the opening bombardment, the momentum of the battle was beginning to swing. Falkenhayn no longer had the advantage of surprise, and the French, under Pétain, were committing themselves to a slogging battle before Falkenhayn was ready. As attacking corps were sent against the heights, they were pinned down by aggressive counterfire from the French batteries. Pétain ordered the building of new defensive positions, and the surviving forts were slowly being rearmed. Pétain also undertook a mass reorganizing of Verdun's defense. Most of the heavy artillery removed to safer positions on the west bank of the Meuse. From concealed positions, they can now concentrate their fire on the heavier German batteries on the opposite bank. This gave the French a base of fire in which to operate their counterattacks. It also had the added benefit of releasing the smaller 75mm field guns, which are now redeployed to check any oncoming assaults. What we see here is a change in dynamic which is often skipped over by critics of Western Front generalship. Until this point in the war, the Anglo-French armies had always carried the battle on the Western Front, which brought with it an important element which cannot go unstated. One of the difficulties the Allied armies encountered in the 1914-15 campaigns was that the Germans enjoyed greater flexibility with their artillery, and had zeroed a large part of it in on no man's land. Without the burden of covering attacking troops or suppressing enemy positions, German batteries were free to direct the weight of their fire against oncoming infantry. So one of the reasons Allied losses were so high in the previous years was because German gunners knew exactly where their shells were landing 9 times out of 10. In February 1916, however, the roles were now reversed. For the first time since the beginning of the war, the Germans were on the offensive, and the French could now put their defensive skills to the test. Only three times in the entire war, August 1914, February 1916, and March 1918, did the Germans ever undertake large-scale offensives in the Western theater. In each time, they ran into the same problems which had befuddled the Allied armies in their previous attempts. 
Plus, as French resolve stiffened, Falkenhayn was in turn forced to reevaluate his perspective. As we saw last day, Falkenhayn had seen Verdun as just one part of a larger picture. He calculated that with the Meuse Heights under his control, they could be held with minimal manpower, while the rest were free to meet the expected Anglo-French counterattack. However, at the end of its first week, Verdun had not gone to plan. The attacking army was unable to take the heights, and the French were getting back on their feet after suffering the opening blow. Operation Judgment was at a crossroads, and Falkenhayn was beginning to have his doubts. After the 26th of February, the chief of the general staff was tempted to call the whole thing off. In his memoir, Falkenhayn recalled this by writing, quote, The question that had to be considered by the general headquarters was whether to intimate that the continuance of the operation on the Meuse would be abandoned, and a new enterprise started on another front, end quote. Falkenhayn was facing problems beyond Verdun as well. The British were taking over a large sector of the front south of Arras near the River Somme, which freed up another 15 or so French divisions for Verdun. It was clear that the British were building in strength, and at twice the speed as previously predicted. What encouraged Falkenhayn to continue were assurances from the Crown Prince and the 5th Army Chief of Staff, Konstantin von Nobelsdorf. The 5th Army leaders were in agreement that the standstill could be broken by expanding operations onto the west bank of the Meuse. This was a natural extension of Falkenhayn's strategy, as the French were committing more reserves, intelligence hinted that Pétain would have 15 to 18 more divisions by the second week of March, Falkenhayn faced the gruesome reality that to counter the growing French presence, he would need to commit more German infantry to the fray. Remember that he believed his attritional strategy would minimize German casualties, but now it was undeniable that things were quickly sliding out of control. The 5th Army Chief had reported to Falkenhayn that French losses were believed to be near 25,000 killed, wounded, or missing, with another 14,500 enlisted, 216 officers, and 45 artillery guns being captured. But he also failed to point out that German losses were near equal to that number. In his beautifully written account of the battle, Paul Jankowski writes that Falkenhayn was beginning to believe things he could not possibly know. The chief of the general staff accepted evidence which fit his strategy, high French losses to marginal German, and dismissed evidence which suggested the contrary. Furthermore, as the French were readying themselves, it was not as if Falkenhayn could pack up shop and walk away. His theory, from a strategic perspective, had worked, although at the tactical level, the seizing of the Meuse Heights and paralyzing the defenders remained in limbo. The decision to expand operations to the West Bank, beginning on March the 6th, was then undertaken to relieve pressure on the attacking corps to the east, but Falkenhayn also hoped it would inevitably suck more French reserves into the battle zone. By seizing the West Bank Plateau, it would allow the western attackers to silence the heavy French artillery, giving the main attack along the east the time and space to finally capture the Meuse Heights. By the end of its first week, a stalemate had settled on the battlefield. The initial shock of the February 21st bombardment worked to temporarily stun the French defenders, allowing the 5th Army to penetrate 3 kilometers along a front just 10 kilometers deep. But this was nothing new to Western Front offensives. As we've seen in our discussion on the Artois and Champagne operations, opening attacks were usually successful when artillery and infantry were massed together. But as the battle dragged on and defense stiffened, Falkenhayn and the 5th Army were no longer fighting dazed and ill-equipped defenders. Under Pétain, Verdun was becoming a fortress again, and the relentless nature of the German attack allowed the French to see its heroic defense as a symbol of national strength. As part of his philosophy, Pétain understood that the key to a strong defense was the morale of its defenders. As a testament to the horrific conditions on the battlefield, Pétain undertook a system of rotation. 
units were not left to be decimated. Once a battalion had lost 50% of its strength, it was recalled for rest and recuperation before being called on again. As a result, it was not uncommon for veterans to experience Verdun numerous times before the battle was finally over. But this also gave units a strong core of experienced officers, who could guide and instruct fresh troops as they made their way in. Also too, Peyton knew the battle was not going to be easy. If he was going to ask his troops to defend at all costs, he needed to ensure they had the means to do so. As the Germans controlled the bulk of the rail lines in the region, the French relied on horses, trucks, and automobiles to deliver supplies to Verdun's defense. Peyton ensured that his men were well stocked. A secondary supply route from the south was formed, running parallel to a Meuse rail line. This new avenue, dubbed the Sacred Way, would be the lifeline of Verdun's defense. From February the 27th to March the 6th, nearly 190,000 troops and 23,000 tons of munitions snaked their way up the road to depots south of the citadel. At peak times in the battle, trucks and automobiles would pass once every 14 seconds, bringing 90,000 troops per week. To protect this crucial lifeline, military police cordoned off 16 kilometers in each direction, and French aircraft flew regular patrols to ensure German aerial spotters could never get a fixed position. It was a massive undertaking, but one which would guarantee the survival of Verdun and the doom of Falkenhayn's vision. Next week, we're going to stay on the Verdun front and discuss the German operations on the west bank of the Meuse, when the battle will take on its final grotesque form. After failing to take their objectives, Falkenhayn would take a crucial step and commit 21 divisions to a mass attack on both banks of the Meuse. On April the 1st, Kaiser Wilhelm declared that as the decision of the war in 1870 took place in Paris, the decision of this war would be at Verdun. It was clear that Verdun was no longer a means to an end, and the high casualties on both French and German sides convinced Falkenhayn that bleeding France into submission was no longer the objective. Verdun would need to be flattened. Throughout France, Verdun was taking on a different meaning all on its own. France had been invaded in 1870 and 1914. And again, in 1916, Germany was attempting to squash their fighting spirit. Verdun, a fortress on the Meuse which had stood since Roman times, became the heart of France's resolve. It was no longer another point on the map, as several French newspapers reported in February. As Falkenhayn attached greater significance, so too did the French, and the struggle along the Meuse was now seen as a contest between civilization and Prussian barbarism. When the Prussians invaded in 1870, Verdun was the last fort to fall and 46 years later, it again found itself in a role that it was all too familiar with. That's it for this week. Check out the website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. There you can find a list of sources, email, and Twitter information if you wish to get in touch with me. Questions, comments, and feedback of any kind is always more than welcome. I'd like to give a thank you to listener Tobias from Lafayette, California, who became the show's most recent donor. Thank you very much, Tobias. If you want to join Tobias and our other generous donors, you'll find the donate button on the homepage. There's no limit to your donation, but every little bit helps, and it goes a long way to keeping the show going. Or, look us up on iTunes in the Apple Store and write a quick 5-star review, which will help keep us afloat in the rankings and force me to continue churning out new episodes. Thanks for sticking by, and we'll see you again shortly.